Welcome to the Good News Ride Home for Wednesday, June 17th, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. The Statue of Liberty arrived in the U.S. on this day in 1885. A look at its original intended meaning. How our poop could help flatten the curve. The Boccaccio Project that's capturing the music of quarantine. And a video camera returned to its owners after being stolen over 20 years ago. Here is your daily dose of good news. On this day in history, June 17th in 1885, the Statue of Liberty arrived in New York Harbor in 350 individual pieces that then had to be assembled over the following year before being finished and dedicated in 1886 by President Grover Cleveland. Now a long-standing symbol of immigration, the Statue of Liberty was originally intended to celebrate the abolition of slavery. In fact, Ellis Island, where many immigrants passed through around the turn of the century, didn't open until 1892, a full six years after the Statue of Liberty's dedication ceremony. And that famous Emma Lazarus poem, Give me your tired, your poor, your huddled masses yearning to breathe free, the plaque of that poem wasn't added until 1903, though the poem itself was actually written 20 years prior to that to help raise money for the construction of the statue. But what's the original story here? Quoting the Washington Post, The monument, which draws four and a half million visitors a year, was first imagined by a man named Edward de Laboulaye. In France, he was an expert on the U.S. Constitution, and at the close of the American Civil War, the president of a committee that raised and dispersed funds to newly freed slaves, according to Yasmin Sabina Khan, author of the book Enlightening the World, the Creation of the Statue of Liberty. In June 1865, Laboulaye organized a meeting of French abolitionists at his summer home in Versailles. They talked about the idea of creating some kind of commemorative gift that would recognize the importance of the liberation of the slaves. Laboulaye secured the partnership of sculptor Frédéric Auguste Bartholdi, who took his sweet time developing an idea. An early model, circa 1870, shows Lady Liberty with her right arm, in the position we're now familiar with, raised and illuminating the world with a torch. But in her left hand, she holds broken shackles, an homage to the end of slavery. One theory has her face being adapted from a statue Bartholdi had proposed for the Suez Canal, meaning her visage could resemble that of an Egyptian woman. The Times reported that she was based on the Roman goddess Libertas, who typically wore the type of cap worn by freed Roman slaves. In the final model, Lady Liberty holds a tablet inscribed with the Roman numerals for July 4th, 1776. The broken chains are still there, though, beneath her feet, but they're not all that visible, Berenson said, end quote. The process of designing, constructing, and raising the funds for the statue took so long that by its unveiling in 1886, the abolitionist meaning had all but been lost. And where it was still there, it left a bitter taste in the mouths of black Americans. With Reconstruction scrapped, Jim Crow laws in full force, and the Supreme Court rolling back civil rights protections, many black writers critiqued the statue as meaningless and hypocritical. One 1886 editorial in the black newspaper The Cleveland Gazette read, quote, "...shove the Bartholdi statue, torch and all, into the ocean until the liberty of this country is such as to make it possible for an industrious and inoffensive colored man in the South to earn a respectable living for himself and family." The idea of liberty of this country enlightening the world or even Patagonia is ridiculous in the extreme, end quote. 
Suffragettes of the era also pointed out the hypocrisy of having a woman embody the idea of liberty when women in America did not even have the right to vote yet. Alan M. Crott, an American university professor and chair of the Statue of Liberty Museum, said, quote, It's an incomplete message in a lot of ways. Liberty was denied to many, many people when the statue was first being conceived, end quote. The Statue of Liberty Museum opened last year here in New York and is dedicated to acknowledging the statue's complicated history, as well as displaying cool physical artifacts and reproductions like the original torch the statue held until the 1980s. Despite the statue's origins, it has long been a symbol of immigration and hope for many, which the museum does not ignore. Stephen A. Briganti, the president of the Statue of Liberty Ellis Island Foundation, which funds the museum, told the New York Times, quote, Half of the people who come here are not Americans. We're telling the American story for the world. Especially as more towns across the U.S. reopen in various capacities, any advances we're able to make in identifying when and where new outbreaks of COVID-19 might occur will be incredibly useful, even if some of those strategies might be a little crappy. Literally, some cities have started analyzing their sewage in order to spot emerging outbreaks. Quoting The Verge, Cities around the United States are dipping into their sewer systems to track the levels of the novel coronavirus circulating inside their populations. If someone is infected with the virus, it shows up in their feces, even before they might feel sick. Virus-flecked feces make their way through the sewage systems, and checking in on all that sewage gives public health officials another layer of data on the extent of the outbreak. It gives us a better idea of what's going on in the city, says New Haven epidemiologist Brian Weeks, who uses the data collected by the Yale team. The Yale research team analyzes samples collected from the treatment plant and reports the virus levels to the city once a week, says Jordan Pesha, a Yale professor of chemical and environmental engineering working on the project. The samples collected by Pesha and his team are bits of sewage sludge, the concentrated material left behind when wastewater is processed. When they compared the levels of virus in the sludge with the numbers of cases reported in the city, they found that the viral loads in the sludge went up around a week before the case counts did. So it could be an early warning, he says, end quote. In Utah, three universities conducted a pilot study on sewage testing and also got promising results, quoting the Salt Lake Tribune. In late May, sharp increases of the virus were measured at two Cache County sewage treatment plants about a week before 287 positive tests were reported among workers at JBS Beef Plant in Hiram. This result indicates the sewage screening can be an effective tool for predicting outbreaks, end quote. Other tests have also been done in Australia, Japan, and throughout Europe, all with similar results. Carmel, Indiana Mayor Jim Brainerd is hopeful about the applications of the sewage testing his town has been doing since early May, quoting The Verge. Once the sewage data is available more consistently, Brainerd says that it'll be reported publicly in the same way case numbers are. He also hopes they'll eventually be able to test sewage from specific buildings, in addition to the overall city. Geico, for instance, has a big facility here, he says. In theory, they could take sewage samples from a manhole just outside the building. Quote, then if we saw a spike in that building, we could get everybody in that building a test within a couple days, find out who's spreading it, get the quarantine started, and do the contact tracing. End quote. 
It's not a glamorous job, but it seems like it's one certainly worth implementing as much as possible, especially as places experiment with reopening. Being able to confirm an outbreak is coming before it happens could save a lot of lives. A number of museums around the world have been putting out calls for stories, objects, photographs, and other media to document this unprecedented time that we're living through. This week, the Library of Congress entered the ring with a new music collection called the Boccaccio Project. Each day for 10 weekdays starting this past Monday, the library is sharing a new musical composition which they had commissioned in response to the pandemic. Quoting Atlas Obscura, David Plylar, senior concerts producer at the library's music division, says he has had something like this project in mind for about 20 years, ever since he first read Boccaccio's Decameron. The text, written in the mid-14th century, contains a total of 100 tales told by 10 different narrators who had fled the city of Florence for the countryside to avoid the plague. While it was not feasible for Plylar and the Library of Congress to commission 100 new pieces for the Boccaccio project, this homage in miniature transfers the poet's form to music. All ten compositions, says Plylar, are, quote, non-narrative short stories that offer different takes on life during a pandemic, end quote. For each piece, a musician was paired with a composer to create something evocative of life in quarantine. Alongside the video of each composition on the Library of Congress's website is a description about the work. For example, Sequestered Thoughts, which you're hearing a selection from now, composed by Damien Sneed and performed by pianist Jeremy Jordan, is described as, quote, The virtuosic fluttering in the right hand can be heard as mirroring the many meandering thoughts that come to one when they find themselves devoid of human interaction and fellowship. And an ascending scale toward the end reflects hope for the future, and peering upward in expectation. Sneed submitted the composition on May 15th before the ongoing anti-racism protests began. Nonetheless, he says, his piece also relates to that more recent historical development, and that motifs and directions in the work mirror protest and reconciliation. End quote. You can follow along with the project on the Library of Congress's website, YouTube channel, Twitter, or Facebook page. New compositions are being released each weekday until June 26th, when the project will culminate with a piece composed and performed by modern flute duet, The Flutronics. In 1998, Sharon Stretton from Mount Isa in Queensland, Australia, splurged on a video camera. One of those big VHS tape ones that were permanently attached to dad's shoulders in the 90s. Unfortunately, after filming a bunch of home videos on it, the video camera was lost, possibly taken from her home. Stretton filed a police report but didn't expect much to come of it, and nothing did. Until last month. The camera was found while cleaning out a vacated public housing complex earlier this year. After a mandatory 60-day expiry period during which no one claimed the camera, the Hewenden Police Station's senior sergeant went looking back in police records and found Stretton's report from 1998 about a lost camcorder. They called up Stretton, who accurately described the camera, and delivered it to her at her new home in Gympie. Stretton said, quote, Not in a million years did I think it would come back. 
It's in pristine condition, which actually blows me away. That, like, somebody has obviously taken it, but it's still in its case, it still has all its leads, it doesn't even look like it has been used. End quote. She does say she's not sure what to do about the tape, which is still inside it and in mint condition, but that in the meantime, her 24-year-old son has been playing around with the camcorder. So, if anyone pops up on TikTok soon with current videos shot on VHS, you know who it is. If he can figure out how to digitize the VHS tape anyways. I've actually been converting a ton of VHS tapes to digital files during quarantine, so I kind of wish I lived closer to this family. I would totally offer to convert the tape for them and see what's on it. Hopefully someone in Queensland can help them out, because I'm sure it'll be pretty priceless to relive whatever they recorded 20 years ago. Not to mention if whoever stole the camera recorded things of their own. I mean, maybe we could actually solve the mystery on what happened to this camera in the intervening years. That is all for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media. I'm Jackson Bird. And hey, if you've been enjoying the good news Ride Home, why not consider sharing it with some of your friends or on social media? You know, help other people infuse their day with 15 minutes of hope, joy, curiosity, a quick antidote to everything else that's going on in our world right now. So if you've been enjoying it, why not share the good news? In any case, thanks for listening. I hope you have a good rest of your day.